title of this morning's message I've given it is Seeing and Celebrating Christ This Christmas. Seeing and Celebrating Christ This Christmas. That's what we're going to be thinking about uh, and looking into God's Word for this morning. So let's begin by praying and ask that God would help us do just that. Father, we thank you for bringing us here together today. Lord, we thank you that it is the start of Advent, that Christmas awaits us. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning through your word and prepare us, prepare our hearts and our minds for this Christmas season. Help us, Lord, we ask, to see and celebrate, even this morning, see and celebrate Christ and his coming and all that he has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we begin, just take a moment to ask yourself, what are you hoping for this Christmas? What are you hoping for this Christmas? And by that, I don't mean right now what presents have you asked for or what have you circled in the Argos catalogue, but what do you hope that this Christmas will be like? What do you hope to experience and enjoy? What do you hope will be the lasting effect of Christmas 2019 on your life? Perhaps for some of us, we've pinned all of our hopes on it being the most perfect day of the year. And we're determined that December is going to be the most magical month of the year as well, full of time off work and parties and family gatherings and music and movies and food and presents and twinkly lights and even maybe cozy open fires. We're determined to make it meaningful and special, even if perhaps it costs us an arm and a leg to do it. Perhaps for some of us, though, we've lost our enthusiasm for Christmas. It's lost some of its magic that it once had. Some of us can perhaps relate to Scrooge at the beginning of the Christmas carol, when everybody else's merriment just makes us more miserable and makes Christmas seem more hollow. And perhaps for you... Christmas just means added pressure, busy shops, feelings of loneliness or family squabbles. And perhaps Christmas has disappointed you one too many times. It just doesn't seem to mean too much for you uh, or do too much for you anymore. So some of us this morning might be desperate to make this the most magical time of the year and others of us might have just grown a bit weary of it all. In either case, what is it that's often lacking from our experience of Christmas? Where is the true heart of Christmas found? Where should we be looking for its meaning? Well, my initial answer is going to seem a bit simplistic and a bit obvious, I know, okay, but bear with me. Here it is. The real joy of Christmas, it should come up on the screen, the real joy of Christmas is found in seeing, savoring, and celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. Now, I know for most of us that is glaringly obvious. But what I'm wondering this morning is that uh, amidst all of the goodness and the busyness and the distractions of the festive season, how good are we at properly stopping and seeing Jesus at Christmas? Even just in day-to-day -day life, I've been thinking about this a bit recently, in uh, day-to-day life, if you're anything like me, it's easy to get into the habit of seeing a lot of things, but without really seeing them. Just think for a moment about all the things that you probably pass on your way to work or to school. Whether you're on foot or you're in a car or you're on a bus, think of all the things that your eyes must see on the way, 
but which you just have no recollection of by the time you get to where you're going. You, you see them, but you don't really register that they're there. They don't affect you. Or another illustration just came to, came to my mind this week. This is for, for the husbands in the room particularly. Think about that clean washing, waiting in a basket at the bottom of the stairs, clearly waiting to go up. And you obviously see it because you don't trip over it. You've got to step over it to carry on up the stairs. You see it, but you don't really see it. You don't notice it in such a way that you actually react in the way that perhaps your wife is hoping you'll react and pick up that basket of washing and take it up for her. Or maybe that's just a character flaw in me. Amen. <laughs> just me then, excellent. <laughs> the reason I mention this is because I wonder if that's somehow, sometimes how we experience Christmas as well. Christmas is all about seeing and savoring and celebrating the incarnation of Christ. And as Christians, we do see and hear a lot of reminders of that at Christmas time. It's on our Christmas cards, it's in our guest services, it's in the songs that we sing, it's in our nativity plays, it's in all sorts of places. But do we stop long enough to, to really see what we're seeing? Or over the years, do we just find ourselves increasingly going on autopilot as we run through the Christmas season, just going through the motions, the days quickly flying by without really seeing the incarnate and risen Jesus anywhere much at all. One way, I think, for us to know if we're really seeing what we're seeing is, does it lead to celebration? Does it lead to joy? Or are we left feeling just dull and indifferent? If we are, then I'd suggest our main problem is that we're not lingering long enough to see with fresh eyes the miracle of Christ's coming at Christmas. And so my aim this morning at the very outset of December is to help us stop and linger, to give us new fuel for the fire of seeing and celebrating the incarnation of Jesus, to, to clean our glasses, uh, to put drops in our eyes, to renew our prescription so that we can see more clearly again the wonder that Jesus has come. And as a result, hopefully, in praying, we'd feel our hearts freshly drawn to deep praise and wonder again this Christmas time. So, to help us this morning, we're going to look at the first half of John chapter 1. So if you want to turn there into your, in your Bibles, there's Bibles down the middle here on the floor if you need one. John chapter 1 is where we'll be looking. And John's Gospel might seem like a slightly odd choice to you for a Christmas message Unlike Matthew and Luke, there's no mention of shepherds and wise men and angels. There's not even really much of a birth in John. But the truth is that John is the gospel writer who paints for us perhaps the grandest and profoundest picture of those original Christmas events. His opening to his gospel is the richest of them all when it comes to helping us really see what took place at Christ's birth. So this morning, John is going to be the one to help us feast our eyes and feast our hearts on the incarnation. Here then is how John introduces us to the person who was once laid small and helpless in a manger in Bethlehem. Verses 1 to 18, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was Before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now we're not going to look in detail at all of these verses today. But I want to highlight for us just three particular things that John tells us about the one who was born in Bethlehem that very first Christmas. Three things about that child, the one who came. First of all, John tells us he was God, sorry, he was with God and was God. He was with God and was God. This is in verses one to three. The 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 mind-blowing opening truth of John's gospel is that Jesus, the baby in the manger, was with God in the very beginning. At the very beginning of all things, before the mountains and the oceans were formed, before time and space existed, the one who would one day be a newborn in a manger was there with God in the beginning. There was never a time when he was not. He existed before he was born. And then to really drive this point home, John begins his gospel by deliberately echoing the opening words of the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning. In the beginning. And all of John's readers, and probably most if not all of us this morning, would immediately recognize those words. Those three words. In the beginning. And we know what the next word should be as well, don't we? Anyone know? In the beginning. God, yes. In the beginning, God. That's how Genesis 1-1 goes. But there's a twist. John has got a surprise for us. In the beginning, he tells us, was the Word. What's he doing by deliberately altering such familiar words? He's alerting us to the fact that Jesus, the, the very man who John and the other disciples knew and walked with and laughed and cried with and talked with and ate with 
the friend that they shared their day-to-day life with, was there as the pre-existent word in the very beginning. And then he tells us something more about this pre-existent word. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Or more literally, the word was towards God. Or we could paraphrase that, the word was face to face with God. The word was with God, toward him. He was face to face with him. Now, what's he telling us here about this word? He's telling us that the word wasn't simply with God like we might be with a bunch of strangers queuing up to pay for our Christmas shopping in the supermarket. He's not just telling us that the word was with God like we might be with, a, with another bunch of strangers on a bus trying to avoid locking eyes because we don't look anyone in the face on the bus on our way home and we're just hoping our stop will come up soon so we can leave. No, it's striking that in this opening line, John wants to tell us something about the word's relationship with God. Now just think for a moment, what does it mean when two people stand or sit for a long time looking into each other's faces, gazing into each other's faces. Think about those people whose faces you would happily gaze into for an hour or two. We look long into the faces of those we love. And here, John tells us that for all of eternity past, the Word and God, the Son and the Father, were toward each other each gazing gladly into the beautiful face of the other. So John's introducing us to this future child in a manger by telling us first about his eternal relationship with the Father. Verse 1 gives us what one, one writer, Sinclair Ferguson, describes as a window into the intimacy of heaven. He says this, "'Neither man nor angel may look on God and live.'" far less lock eyes with him in the deepest intimacy of mutual devotion. Yet John says the word of God could lock eyes with God, drinking in his love and returning it. But how is this possible? In the Old Testament, the people were taught that no one could look at the face of God and live. If staring into the sun in the sky, even during a solar eclipse, will seriously damage our sight, how much less able are any of us to gaze directly at the infinite glory of God who made the sun in the sky and who determines every solar eclipse. We cannot see God's face and live. It is altogether too bright and holy for us to look upon. How is it possible then for the Word to do what men and angels could never hope to do. How can he lock eyes with God in this most intimate way? Well, it's possible because as verse 1 also tells us, the Word was God. He was with God and he was God. This Word shares all the divine attributes of God. In particular, John tells us that he wasn't just there in the beginning, He was involved in bringing all things into being in the beginning. Verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Or as it says in Colossians 1 verse 16, By him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is the one who would one day lay small and helpless as a baby in a manger. John had, of course, heard with his own ears later on Jesus himself telling people that he was one with the Father, that he spoke with the authority of the Father, that he was doing the very works of the Father, that he shared the Father's glory. He told the Pharisees, much to their dislike, John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. So you see, the thing that John most wants his readers, most wants, most wants us to understand from the outset is that if you want to know who Jesus really is, the first thing you need to know is that he was in the beginning with God, that he is God and was with God at the very start. Okay, but what does all this have to do with Christmas? That's the question, isn't it? What does it have to do with Christmas? The answer begins to unfold in the second thing that John tells us about the word this morning. And we're going to jump down on your page in your Bible to verse 14, where John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here is something truly staggering. It's almost unfathomable as we try to get our heads around it and comprehend it. John says the uncreated creator came to live in his creation. The same eternal divine word that we were just reading about in verse 1 chose a particular moment in human history to enter our world as a man. The Son of God became incarnate. That word just means in the flesh. He came in flesh. He entered our world as a man. God became one of us. You might say bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And without in any way ceasing to be fully God, God the Son became fully man. God came in the frailty and weakness of human flesh. Never has anyone so exalted chosen to stoop so low. As one of the Christmas hymns reminds us, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. It doesn't get any lower or humbler than this. That Christ, the everlasting Lord, came into this world as an embryo, a tiny human life, a small human speck in his own vast cosmos. And Sinclair Ferguson writes, Imagine that the technology of the 21st century had been available in the 1st century. It would have been possible for Mary and Joseph to have seen the embryonic form of the Lord Jesus Christ in the now well-recognized fetal position, wholly dependent, lying in the darkness of his mother's womb. He came from the burning light of glory into the confined space of the body of a young woman in her teens. He brought nothing with him except himself. He came empty-handed. And then at his birth, the Lord, I love these comparisons now, the Lord was wrapped in swaddling bands. 
the one who combined the chains of the Pleiades or loosed the cords of Orion, lies now in a manger. The one who populated the forest with trees lies now within the bark of one. The one who has always been face to face with the father now stares into the face of his teenage mother. The one whom the heavens cannot contain is now contained within a stable. He who cradles the universe is himself now cradled in an animal's feeding trough. Now that word dwelt as well in verse 14 is more literally the word tabernacled, which tells us that in his incarnation, God was pitching his tent among us. All that the Old Testament tabernacle symbolized, and if you remember, our, we did Exodus this year, did an overview of it, and we looked at the tabernacle, all that it pointed to of, of God's intent to live among his people, here it is now being fully realized in Jesus and in his birth. But you notice it's quite a different arrival from the one that God made when his glory came down on the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. Uh, if you watch movies, in the movies, sometimes the moments of greatest drama are full of noise and action and there's explosions and special effects and bright lights and it all looks very impressive. And the descent of God's glory on the original tabernacle was one of those moments. It was big and bright and powerful. But other times in the movies, the greatest drama comes in the stillest and quietest moments. And the incarnation is one of those moments. There are no fireworks or bright lights from heaven. No one saw the first spark of life in Mary's womb when the Lord Jesus was conceived. At his birth, there was no royal welcome or fanfare or street parties or spectacular glows emanating from the stable in spite of what you often see on the Christmas cards. There's just a baby lying in a manger. And yet, this is far more dramatic, more profound. It's far more incredible than God's glory descending on the tabernacle 1,300 years earlier. For here is Emmanuel, God finally with us, asleep in the straw. Another hymn, another line, low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Now just think for a moment, what would it have been like if, if you or I were, had the privilege of being one of the shepherds who came to visit Jesus at his birth? What would you have seen when you entered the stable and looked down into the manger? At first glance, just another baby. But then you'd look again and you'd let your gaze linger for a moment and remember the words of the angels who sent you to find him. And now who would you see? In the angels' words, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here is God in a manger. Here is, John said earlier on in chapter 1, the light of life. Here is the one who was face to face with God, now lying face to face with us. Here is the Son of God become one of us. How would you have returned to that, your field that night, having seen what you'd just seen? 
Well, we don't have to guess because uh, Luke tells us in Luke 2 verse 20, the shepherds returned to their field glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. And that is the kind of seeing and savoring and celebrating that God invites every one of us to pursue for ourselves this Christmas. To intentionally stop and recognize and rejoice in who it was that arrived that night in Bethlehem. The real joy of Christmas, as we said, is found in seeing and savoring and celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. And it's seeing this clearly again that with God's help will bring a renewed sense of awe and wonder into any one of our hearts and minds this Christmas. It's this that will restore to us the joy of what we celebrate, particularly at this time of year, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But there's also one more thing too. One more thing John wants to tell us here in his introduction about the baby in the manger. He wants to tell us the ultimate reason for his coming. So our third point this morning is this. He makes the Father known. He comes, he makes the Father known. The more we think about the incarnation, the more we realize just how incredible it is, what a concept, what a reality that God has come, the more we have to ask and should be asking, why? Why did the Word become flesh? Why did Jesus come? Why would he stoop so low? Why did he dwell among us? And that's the question that John is most eager and I think most excited to answer as well. It's where all of the all of the, uh, the opening verses of this chapter are building to, to answering the question of what the Word came to do. And he actually gives the answer in several different ways throughout the passage that we read. But he gives his summary answer in verse 18. Look at verse 18. It begins with, if I can say this about a verse in the Bible, it begins with a disappointing statement. This is a disappointing statement. No one has ever seen God. Now, take that on its own, and that's incredibly disappointing. Especially if we realize that, in fact, seeing and knowing God is really what life is ultimately all about. It's what we were made for. It's what we long for. No one, says John, verse 18, up to this point in human history, has ever seen God face to face. No man or angel, no one has ever fixed their gaze on God in the fullness of his glory. Except for one person, of course. Except, verse 18, for the only God who is at the Father's side. Huh. I think we've met him. He sounds familiar. As we saw in verse 1, he... The only God who's at the Father's side. He was there in the beginning. He was with God, toward God, face to face with the Father. He and he alone was gazing at and enjoying the glory of his Father for all of eternity past. Then John writes a stunning phrase. Verse 18, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he 
has made him known. Here is why, why the Father sent the Son. Here is why the Son was willing to take on flesh. He came to make God known. In Christ, the invisible God is made visible. The unseeable God is made seeable. As the hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Or as it says in Colossians 1 verse 19, For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And as Jesus later told Philip, John 14 verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so, John can write, verse 14, We, and I reckon John can hardly believe he's writing these words. I reckon he's fallen off his stool three times before he's got this sentence down. He says, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. The glory of God that before this moment no one could see. Now in Christ, John says, we have seen it for ourselves. And then there's three things in particular that he wants us to know about this glory. Firstly, that it's only found in Jesus. Only the Son can reveal the glory of the Father and in turn make the Father known to us. There's, there's no other way to see this glory except in Jesus. Secondly, he wants us to know that the glory of God that Jesus reveals is full of grace and truth, which means that Jesus reveals the very character and the heart of God towards us. Yes, you know, it's amazing just in itself that in Jesus we get to see God, but we could be worried, like, what are we going to find when we look there? What will we see? What will this God be like? Well, Gloriously, we find a God who is full of grace and truth. And what John's doing most likely is echoing uh, the words that God himself used when he revealed his name to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. There, as he passed before Moses and allowed Moses to just catch a little glimpse of his glory, just see the back parts of it, God, said, God announced, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in grace and truth, the same things. Isn't it incredible that this is the God that we discover when we look at Jesus? A God more merciful, gracious, and loving than anything we could ever have hoped for or imagined. And the third thing that John tells us about the glory revealed in Jesus is something that he's actually going to carry on unfolding as he works his way through uh, his whole gospel, the book of John. And that is that God's glory will be most vividly revealed, not in Jesus' birth, as amazing as that is, but in his death. The child in the manger was in a unique way born to die. In fact, Christmas has no meaning at all apart from Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The ultimate reason Jesus came as a man was so that he could die 
as a sacrifice for sinners. Colossians 1, again, verses 19 and 20 this time, tells us, Paul writes, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, there's the incarnation again, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ took on our flesh in the manger so that ultimately he might take on our sin at the cross. And nowhere do we see God's glory, nowhere do we see God's heart for sinners shine more brightly than at the cross. That the Son of God would enter our dark and broken world as a man in order to lay down his life for sinners. That is the ultimate display of God's glory. And it's that glory that John most wants his readers, he wants us to see and respond to. As John the Baptist declares later on in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Behold, he wants us to see, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an invitation to behold, to see this morning. But what about you? Have you beheld him and seen his glory? Have you personally received peace with God by the blood of his cross? To all who receive him, John says in verse 12, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. But have you believed? Have you received him? If you haven't, he's inviting you to do that this morning. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. There's no special test to pass. All Jesus asks is that you put your trust in him to be saved. And if you've got questions about that, we would be delighted to answer them after the service. But for those of us who have received him, for those of us who've already become children of God, the call to behold and see is God's continued invitation to us, each one of us today. God invites us this morning to go on beholding his glory that shines forth so brightly from his Son and to see it revealed afresh in the incarnation this Christmas, in Jesus' birth and then his life and death and resurrection, to go on seeing and savoring and celebrating who Christ is and all that he has accomplished. Now, it's not just an invitation for Christmas time, of course. But Christmas and Advent, I think, do provide us with a special opportunity to really dwell on the fact that God came to dwell with us in Christ. It's a special opportunity to delve deeper into the mystery of the incarnation and in a personal way, the mystery of Emmanuel, God with us. To see him and celebrate him this Christmas. And so just before we finish, I want to give just a few practical suggestions of how we might do this. Unfortunately, all of this seeing and savoring and celebrating doesn't happen automatically, if only it did. But Christ-centered Christmases don't just happen. They take intentionality. Uh, And yet surely nothing is more worthy of our intention than doing this. Nothing more rewards our attention than repeatedly fixing our eyes on Jesus. So Here's four quick practical suggestions for Christmas. 
None of these are radical or surprising. Um, probably most of them are super obvious. But they're all well worth thinking about how you could personally pursue them. And praying, too, that God would use them to deepen our joy in Christ this Christmas. So here they are, four things. Uh, in short, we're gonna, I've got devotions, songs, gifts, and people. First of all, devotions. That, perhaps the, the, the first and most effective thing that we can do throughout December is to carve out a time for daily devotions and to steer them in a particular direction over Christmas. Nothing will help us see and savor our Savior come into the world better than reading what God himself tells us about it in his word. Now, of course, we know that all the, all the Bible, all of Scripture points to Jesus, but, but I would suggest maybe December's not the best time to be spending all of your time immersed in Jeremiah or Habakkuk or something like that. Perhaps make a beeline for the Gospels or something similar. Read Matthew or Luke or carry on reading John. Spend December reading the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And have a think, too, about using a Christmas devotional alongside your Bible reading. There are so many good ones out there today. Uh, you've probably got maybe a bunch of them on your shelf. We haven't got a bookstore with them here, but I've brought some with me. If you want to take a look at some afterwards, I'll, I'll put them on the stage. But, but think about adding into your Bible reading a helpful devotional as well, just to enrich your thinking about all that took place when Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago. Devotions. Secondly, think about songs. Christmas is a time of music and singing. And if you don't believe that, you just look at the angels who came to bring the message to the shepherds. They couldn't help but sing. Uh, even our radio stations right now have already moved to the Christmas playlist, whether you're happy about that or not. And I've got nothing against the, a smattering of old uh, classic Christmas pop classics, whether it's Bing Crosby, Crosby or Michael Bublé or Wham or whoever your favorite is. But let's be especially intentional about feeding our ears with a good dose of Christ-centered Christmas songs this Christmas. Why not put together a playlist of good Christmas tunes and listen to them, sing along with them, and ponder their words, sometimes like you're reading some fine Christmas poetry, because often that's what they are. We sing about what we're excited about, and we get more excited about what we sing about. So sing often about the Savior who came, the Savior who you want to see and celebrate this Christmas. Thirdly, think about gifts. Christmas is full of gifts. Uh, searching for them, buying them, wrapping them, receiving them. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's a chore. But there's a way to redeem every aspect of our gift giving. Just let every gift that you give to others remind you that we give because God first gave to us. That's why we give. Let every gift you're given remind you that we've already received the greatest gift of all uh, that we could in Jesus. And that means actually as well, as you get a pair of socks you don't really like, it doesn't matter. You've already got Jesus. And every time you thank someone for a gift, thank God too for the gift of his son. It's just a simple way to keep making the gift of Christ central to our Christmas experience. And fourthly, people. Find ways to help other, pe other people see and celebrate Jesus with you. 
turn, let's turn our conversations together around to Jesus. Perhaps sharing in particular over this month things that we've been seeing in our Christmas devotions. If you're a parent, seize the opportunity throughout Advent to direct the gaze of your children towards the incarnation. And for all of us, find friends and neighbors who don't yet know why Christmas is far more amazing than they think it is and tell them why it's really, really good news. And invite them along to one of the Christmas services, if you like, as well, so they can celebrate with us. Well, let me just conclude. However we do it, seeing, savoring, and celebrating the incarnation is the way, the road, the path to real meaning and joy at Christmas. And in God's kindness, Christmas is filled with all sorts of other good and often tasty gifts as well for us to enjoy, but nothing compares to beholding the glory of God in his Son. But for those of us who find Christmas difficult as well, a time where perhaps you, rest, you wrestle with loneliness or grief, with sickness or sadness or just difficult family circumstances, seeing and savoring Jesus promises to give us the, the truest form of comfort and peace and rest that might elude us in every other way at Christmas. But it's all of it given to us in him. To paraphrase, to finish, paraphrase another writer who said this, whatever the challenges or struggles you face this Christmas, you can know for certain that God himself is with you. You can know for sure that God himself is for you. The evidence is in the manger. Jesus is the greatest proof of God's unending love for us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Let's pray.